Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 30th. In today's news, hopes rise for an experimental drug therapy for COVID-19. One in six nursing homes acknowledge the contagion has infected residents or staff. And dogs are being trained to sniff out the coronavirus. But first, the big idea. During the first week she had COVID-19, Morgan Blue felt weak with a severe backache and a fever. But the symptoms didn't alarm doctors at her local emergency room. They sent her home after she showed up at the hospital. But then, on day eight, she abruptly felt like she was choking. The 26-year-old customer service representative from Flint, Michigan, said suddenly she couldn't breathe. An ambulance took her to the hospital, where she spent eight days, four of them, in intensive care before she recovered and was able to go home. For people who suffer the most severe reactions to this novel coronavirus and their caregivers, the second week can become a time of sudden peril and heightened concern when some of those who seem stable or on the mend suddenly become critically ill. There is little consensus among doctors and experts about why the 5th through 10th days or thereabouts seem to be so dangerous for some people. But critical care specialists and EMTs alike are aware of this frightening aspect of the disease. Learning on the fly as they confront the virus, clinicians speculate about the influence of an individual's genes, the virus's effect on lung tissue, overactive immune responses, blood clotting, and even the impact of the ventilators used to save lives. There is little, if any, current research to guide them. Doctors say the overwhelming majority of COVID cases do not require hospitalization. According to the CDC, U.S. COVID-19 patients are currently hospitalized at a rate of 29 per 100,000 people. That represents about 10% of the 1 million known cases so far. Of those, only a small percentage require intensive care and an even smaller percentage require ventilators. And only some will experience a rapid deterioration of their health. But people with the coronavirus can crash before or after they're hospitalized. Doctors are reporting seeing patients who wait too long to seek care, including those who don't feel the symptoms of plummeting oxygen levels, like shortness of breath, until they're in a life-threatening crisis. Again, no one's sure why. That's what's so scary about this. Many people's lungs remain flexible for a while, allowing carbon dioxide out and forestalling the sensation that they can't breathe because they're not getting enough oxygen. One theory being discussed is that the virus may be killing the cells that line the air sacs of our lungs, which keep them open and allow for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. At some point, the body simply can't regenerate those cells as quickly as they die and a stable situation then turns life-threatening. That may also help explain why COVID-19 patients can linger on ventilators for up to four weeks, much longer than with other respiratory diseases. Another line of thought focuses on the virus's possible effect on the cardiovascular system. Researchers have suggested that some crashes are caused by events like heart attacks, strokes, and clots related to blood thickening. Perhaps some of the clotting complications may be caused by an overactive immune response that comes after the virus has settled in. A paper in the medical journal Lancet says that 
COVID-19 appears to have the ability to attack the lining of blood vessels anywhere in the body. Researchers in Zurich speculated that this may be why so many organs, including the lungs, kidneys, and intestines, are affected in patients with the most severe cases. It also could explain why people with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity, as well as smokers, are more likely to have severe cases of the illness. This might also be why the second-week crash and COVID-19 itself are so rarely seen in children. Children generally have pretty healthy blood vessels. Within the medical field, a big debate is broken out about whether physicians are turning to ventilators too often and too early, driven by the traditional response to remarkably low blood oxygen levels in patients who show none of the symptoms of oxygen deprivation. Some doctors advocate a more conservative initial response that would spare patients the sedation, intubation, and side effects that come with mechanical ventilation. Aware of the hazards of the second week, hospitals have employed multiple tactics. Some are putting patients on oxygen earlier. Some are using blood thinners prophylactically to prevent clots. At UCLA, caregivers more aggressively monitor ventilator pressure, and they're using proning, which is when you place patients on their stomachs, as much as 16 hours a day. There are signs that's been working. The technique has been shown to increase the amount of oxygen getting into the lungs of patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a hallmark of the severe COVID cases. Many specialists expect that they will continue adjusting their approaches to this disease and to the unpredictability of its second week as we get more data. Morgan, the Michigan woman I told you about earlier, has been out of the hospital now for nearly a month, but she still gets shortness of breath and suffers heart palpitations and anxiety. She said she knows of 10 people personally in her community who have died of the virus. Last week, she ventured out to the grocery store for the first time since mid-March and saw people without masks. She said she felt such distress that she left the store without buying most of what was on her list. She says it's mind-blowing to her that there are still people who are not taking this seriously. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. More than 60,000 of our fellow Americans have now died from COVID-19, eclipsing the number of servicemen who were killed in the entire Vietnam War. Not long ago, President Trump projected that 60,000 would be the upper bound of deaths. Fortunately, though, there are some promising early signs that an experimental antiviral drug called remdesivir can be effective in speeding the recovery time for COVID patients. Tony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, says the data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time of recovery. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which Fauci leads, is overseeing a study of more than 1,000 patients in the U.S. and around the world. The study shows that patients treated with remdesivir were ready to be discharged from the hospital within 11 days on average, compared with an average of 15 days for patients who had received a placebo. While not a knockout, Fauci says this shows an important and promising avenue for further study, and it offers proof that a drug can block the virus. Remdesivir can have serious side effects, though, too, including loss of kidney function and declining blood pressure. These symptoms are also caused by severe cases of covid 
making it difficult to determine which problems were caused by remdesivir and which were caused by the coronavirus. This government study is the most rigorous test to date of the potential treatment because it is a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. That's the gold standard for seeing whether a drug is safe and effective. So much of the research that we're seeing being pumped out there has not been peer-reviewed and is not following these highest standards. Separately, a growing number of studies, including one published this week in the journal Nature, have found evidence that the coronavirus can remain suspended in the air in aerosol particles. That raises anew the question of whether and to what extent this virus can be transmitted as an aerosol. Although the evidence is far from conclusive and no such infections have been documented, the consensus so far is that the virus, although very contagious, spreads through respiratory droplets generated when people breathe, speak, or cough, and does not infect people through particles that can linger in the air for hours in the way that measles and some other viral diseases can. But that research is fueling a debate among scientists over one of the most basic questions about the virus, how it spreads, and it's doing so, of course, at a time of high anxiety and rattled nerves. Number two, the number of nursing homes publicly reporting cases of COVID-19 has doubled in the past week, with more than one in six facilities nationwide now acknowledging infections among residents or staff. The rise is driven in part by newly released information about previous infections from states including Michigan, Maryland, Kentucky, and South Carolina. Some states have still not publicly released the names of affected nursing homes. In at least five states, the virus has struck a majority of nursing homes. Those states are Maryland, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Georgia, and New Jersey. In New Jersey, second only to New York in total number of confirmed cases. Health officials have reported infections at 80% of the nursing homes in that state. COVID-19 has been especially deadly for the elderly. More than 2,700 Medicare-certified nursing homes have now publicly reported coronavirus cases. Number three, as more states move to reopen after weeks of shutdowns, infectious disease experts say the prevention of future outbreaks will require scaling up testing and identifying asymptomatic carriers. Eight Labrador retrievers and their powerful noses have been enlisted to join the fight. The dogs are the first trainees in a University of Pennsylvania research project to determine whether canines can detect an odor associated with the virus that causes COVID-19. If so, the university says they might eventually be used in a sort of canine surveillance core, offering a non-invasive, four-legged method to screen people in airports, businesses, or hospitals. Poncho, Miss M, and six other chocolate, yellow, and black labs began the first stage of training earlier this month, learning to identify an odor for a food reward. Next, the dogs will train using urine and saliva samples collected from patients who tested positive and negative at Philadelphia hospitals. Experts say a trained dog could actually be more effective at detecting whether you have the coronavirus than a thermometer. In addition to drugs, explosives, and contraband food items, dogs are able to sniff out malaria, cancers, and even a bacterium ravaging Florida's citrus groves. Researchers found different viruses have specific odors. A similar effort is underway in London at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where researchers previously demonstrated that dogs could identify malaria infections in humans. 
James Logan, head of that school's disease control department, says his team expects to begin collecting COVID-19 samples and training canines within a matter of weeks. His initial goal is to deploy six dogs to airports in the United Kingdom. He believes each individual dog can screen up to 250 people per hour for the coronavirus. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, April 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.